Good afternoon. You are listening to Dawnland Signals on WERU on Thanksgiving Day 2021. Dawnland Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change here in the Dawnland. We explore topics such as restorative justice, restorative practices, decolonization, cultural revival, and more. Our guests are people involved in aspects of truth, healing, and change work. This program is offered in an effort to share, inspire, and inform. Dawnland Signals is a collaboration of Wabanaki Reach and WERU-FM. I am your co-host, Maria Gerard. Good afternoon. Um, thank you for joining us on this Thanksgiving Day special. Um, I am your co-host, Esther Ann, and so excited to uh, introduce our guest today. But first, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. Close your eyes for a minute, if you can, if you're not driving, and think, what if you lived when the English colonists and the Wampanoag people shared a feast at Plymouth? What would you have worn? What would you have eaten? What was the true story of the feast that we now know as the first Thanksgiving? And how did it become a national holiday? Chris Newell answers all these questions and more um, in his new book. <clears throat> Chris, I'll let, him in, I'll let him tell you about the title of the book and introduce the book. But Chris is a Paspahwati, best Sumukadi from Indian Township, Madoc Miguk. He was born and raised there. He is the co-founder and director of education for Agatmawat. Did I say that right? Agamount. Agamount Educational Initiative, a majority native-owned educational consultancy based in Connecticut. Welcome, Chris. I'm so excited um, to talk about this book today with you. Um, I'll have you let you... Um, before you, we before we have you introduce yourself, Maria is going to do a land appreciation. Thank you, Esther. Yes, before we dive into the conversation and um, and get into discussion with Chris, let's just take a brief moment to acknowledge the land beneath our feet, Wabanaki, the land of the first light, the dawn land land that has known Wabanaki ancestors, the tallest trees, and the oldest rivers, land that has known peace and conflict, land that has nourished us and sustained us since time immemorial. We acknowledge the indigenous peoples of this land, Wabanaki, the Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, and Abenaki and we give thanks to your stewardship and resilience. Nadal Nabem Nawuk, all my relations, we are broadcasting from WERU studio in Blue Hill, Alamusik, Wabanaki. Holy one, Maria. And welcome, Chris. Um, we'll just let you start telling us about your wonderful book. Tell us about the title and everything. 
All right. Um, uh, thank you, Esther Ann. Thank you, Maria. Thank you to Wabanaki Reach, uh, you know, for having me here. Uh, welcome, everybody. Um, uh, you know, just a, a little bit of uh, uh, background. Esther Ann and I uh, have a, a common uh, project uh, from the past. Uh, we, uh, she was a subject, uh, one of the main subjects of the film Dawnland, and I was one of the people in the post-production that helped, um, you know, so uh, Esther and I got to be good friends along the process. So much respect uh, to Esther and everybody at, at Wapmanaki Reach for all the tremendous game-changing work that they do. So I just wanted to put that plug out there that, you know, how much I respect this organization and how I'm honored to really be here today as, a, as an invitee to talk about, uh, you know, this, this latest piece of work that, that I've done. Um, now, I am a um, uh, educator by trade. I'm not a book writer, uh, you know, so this is uh, something that is brand new for me. This is actually my first book uh, that's ever been published. Um, and it, on, on, uh, ironically, it's also uh, the same year that my, my father's first English language uh, book, uh, it's actually in English in Passamaquoddy book, was, was also published this year, uh, Stories Our Grandmothers Told Us. So, um, you know, it's uh, kind of serendipitous, I guess, you know, that, that he and I would end up publishing in, in the exact same year two completely different topics, um, but we definitely have a lot of the same pedagogy when it comes to uh, the way we teach. You know, I learned everything about how I teach about Native peoples, uh, you know, from watching, uh, you know, the example of my dad set for me. And so a lot of that, uh, you know, bleeds into, um, you know, the creation of, of this particular work. Um, the book is called If You Lived uh, During the Plymouth Thanksgiving, and uh, it's it's a, a remake of a series. Uh, it's, it's published by Scholastic, um, and uh, it's a remake of a series that they're doing uh, that began back in the 70s, a, a series called If You Lived. Uh, so there's several of them. If You Lived uh, During the American Revolution, uh, If You Lived uh, During Martin Luther King's Time, um, you know, there's a lot of great historical books. And the way that the format of this particular Particular book is it's it's kind of got a formula to it uh, in that it's made for um, you know younger uh, elementary school kids. This one aimed at uh, first to fourth grade, um, and uh, the way the chapters, I guess you could call them, are, are set up are really just questions. Um, you know, so if you look at the table of contents, you'll see a series of questions, and if you turn to that page. Uh, it starts with the question and then the uh, the chapter, I guess you could say, is about is just an answer to the question. Um, so that question and answer format, very familiar, especially to younger readers. Um, and it's also, even though there's a lot of material in the book, it's a nonfiction book uh, and ended up being 96 pages. Um, you know, so it is, it is quite lengthy, but um, uh, if a, a student were to look for specific uh, information uh, about a, a certain topic, they could just look up the question and, and, and uh, find the, uh, the, uh, the page or two of information that they could have. Um, the way this came about, once again, I'm not a writer. Uh, I wasn't seeking uh, to write a book uh, when I was approached with this. Uh, this was actually kind of a, a friend of a friend type of thing. I, you know, sometimes it is who you know. Um, uh, I have a longtime friend from Dartmouth College uh, named Demosa Weber Bay, who is an archivist for Scholastic. 
has been pushing very, very heavily uh, with uh, Scholastic as, as an organization to diversify uh, where uh, their authors come from, especially when it comes to representation of uh, you know, certain lifeways and histories. Uh, and uh, when it came to the opportunity to rewrite this book, which was originally called If You Live During the First Thanksgiving, um, uh, you know, the uh, Domosa really pushed hard uh, to have a native writer and knowing my history at the Pequot Museum and then following that, uh, working a lot to educate people about, um, you know, the Wampanoag version of uh, the story of, you know, that we often, the narrative that became the first Thanksgiving narrative, um, you know, uh, she really felt that I, I would be a good candidate for being able to do this. And um, in, in the process of creating this, I'm a Passamaquoddy writer, I'm not Wampanoag, this is not uh, my tribal history, right, you know, but I'm also a Native writer that's very attuned to the fact uh, that a lot of other, you know, non-Native writers have written about our histories and have kind of taken it uh, and made it out on their own, and, um, and, and uh, there's a long history in that process of not centering the actual voices of the native cultures uh, that they come from. And my approach to this particular book was to get my Wampanoag, I call them relatives, they're not blood relatives, but there's people, I've, I've lived in this region now in Southern New England for uh, 25 years. So I've made lots of great relationships. Uh, some of my friends uh, from college going, you know, back to, uh, you know, the 1990s uh, were Wampanoag as well. And uh, so I consider those people almost like family. And um, my mission in writing this book uh, was really to make sure that my Wampanoag relatives are heard in their own histories. And I really centered, uh, you know, a lot of their knowledge uh, in writing it. Um, and I also involved uh, uh, tribal elder scholar, Wampanoag elder scholar, uh, Linda Coombs, um, who uh, checked my homework very diligently uh, and does not hold back if I get something wrong. Uh, you know, and I was very, very th uh, grateful for her, for her involvement. Uh, she added so much, uh, especially when it comes to the detail, uh, you know, in Wampanoag perspective, uh, you know, so there's a lot of hands that went into this, um, but it is, uh, you know, what uh, the, the reviewers have called a measured corrective uh, to pervasive myths about the narrative about this particular piece of history, which is the first Thanksgiving narrative, which was actually a development of the 19th century. So that's a little of the background of the book. Um, could I, um, could I read, I was looking at some of the book reviews mm -hmm. and I just wanted to read this. There was a wonderful book review by John Scott, Baltimore County. Um, and it, it's long, but this is the, he, he says the verdict, right? And I'll just say what the verdict is. The verdict, this essential book should replace many established titles on the shelves. It never shies away from pitting hard history against a mythology that is not helpful to students living in the 21st century. I thought that, like, what a wonderful endorsement. That, that, to, that to me, with reading that was terrific because that was a real goal of mine, uh, you know, because when I teach about, um, you know, uh, uh, Thanksgiving, I, I created a program at the Pequot Museum that I kind of, you know, still uh, engage in. I call it Demystifying Thanksgiving. 
Um, and I, I really frame uh, the Thanksgiving narrative that got created in the 19th century by fiction writers as part of foundational mythology of this country. You know, it's just a, it's it's a story that was developed at a time uh, when the country was going through a very difficult time of the Civil War, um, and it was basically kind of a propaganda idea as a way to try to bring the country together in the post Civil War period. Um, you know, so creating these foundational myths uh, that were so friendly sounding and positive and, um, you know, kind of glosses over what happened before, what happened afterwards, because the Mayfaller landing, I mean, is pos made possible by the epidemic that preceded it, the great dying of 1616 to 1619. That, you know, is never told in the first Thanksgiving narrative that is popularly told at, in the school level and hasn't been since the 19th century. Um, and uh, even though Usama Quinn did create an alliance with Bradford's people and honored it. Uh, you know, there's not, uh, uh, you know, there's, it's not like there's a lack of violence happening to Native peoples in the region. And after Usama Quinn's death, King Philip's War erupts, uh, partially because of one of uh, the passengers on the Mayflower, Miles Standish. So King Philip's War, the violence, the tremendous violence um, that erupted, you know, from that event, um, you know, uh, is definitely tied uh, to the Mayflower landing, even though it happens 40 to 50 years later, you know, so I, I don't, you know, divorce those things from each other, uh, you know, because if the colonization has an effect. Um, yes, there is some, uh, you know, uh, interesting bits of, of history, you know, the uh, alliance that was made between Osamaquin's people uh, and Bradford's people, but there's also reasons why it happened. Part of it was the decimation of disease uh, and other reasons. And so it was a mutually beneficial relationship um, that didn't exist with other Native peoples in other parts of the region, you know. So, um, yeah, um, I'm going off on tangents a little bit here, so you might need to rein me in. So, <laughs> no, I'm really uh, appreciating this this history and this honest rendition of history. I'm, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to reading the book myself. So it sounds like a wonderful new resource and just in time because it just came out. Is that correct, Chris? Yeah, yeah. Actually, the release date was uh, um, uh, November second. Um, so this is, you know, still new. Uh, and, uh, you know, because it's published by Scholastic, uh, thankfully, there's a lot of availability to it. Um, you know, you can go to major retailers, uh, Amazon, uh, Walmart, Target, not, not, you know, some people, folks don't want like the, you know, uh, um, put their money with the big retailers. If you look at indie books, uh, they will give you a list of local bookstores that actually carry the title and you can uh, find it and, and drive to it or order it from them as well. So that's, a, a, you know, you, there's all kinds of ways, uh, you know, to send uh, your money to support people that, that you want and, and find the book accessible to you. And kudos to your friend at Dartmouth for, you know, pressing Scholastic to, to have an Indigenous author. I really like that background to this book. Yeah, no, she's a tremendous friend. Um, you know, we, we've known each other, respected each other for forever. Uh, and and uh, like I said, Demosa is kind of a, a force uh, within Scholastic. She worked her way up, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, into uh, her role as an archivist and, and sits on several of the boards for the different uh, production, you know, book production uh, uh, sections 
uh, of Scholastic now. So she, uh, you know, uh, her voice definitely has some weight there uh, and with good reason. She's extremely intelligent um, and she sees, you know, the, the need for, uh, you know, that diversity, you know, because one of the things that I always talk about, um, you know, is that, you know, in, in our community, um, you know, we didn't have necessarily the examples, uh, you know, the always uh, present, you know, male teachers, right, you know, and teaching in our classroom, male native teachers teaching in our classroom um, was is, is something that I never had, uh, you know, and, uh, um, and that's something that I think needs to be remedied, you know, uh, we have women teachers now starting to emerge and, and uh, as Esther knows that's that's, you know, women lead the way in our communities when, when these things and I'm just following that lead. Um, you know, and trying to become an example for for young folks to for that, uh, you know, what they can accomplish, you know, because I was lucky in that I grew up with my dad, uh, you know, Wayne Newell is, is not an unknown person. And, uh, you know, so I got to go uh, at the time I was a child, you know, and, uh, you know, we didn't have, you know, care, you know, for, you know, things like that. So I got dragged, you know, to all of the presentations and stuff. And at 10 years old, it's a little boring for you. But, I was there and eventually some of that stuff starts to sink in um, and I began to see the value in what he was doing and the way that he can speak cross-culturally. He can speak not only intelligently to Passamaquoddy people and be respected that way and in our language, um, but he can also speak to the English-speaking crowd uh, and find a way to bridge their understanding uh, to an Indigenous understanding. And, and I think that's really based in is the fact that he is bilingual, and I try to incorporate that as much as possible. I, I oftentimes uh, talk about, in, in my core teaching with Agamemnon, the shortcomings of trying to teach about Wabanaki peoples or just native peoples in general through uh, the foreign language of English, uh, you know, and that's one of the things that comes up actually, you know, in, in the, 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 the run up to the book coming out in the pre-order uh, section, uh, as it was being advertised, uh, you know, people, you know, uh, judged it by its cover, uh, you know, um, for for two for different reasons, native and non-native people, and um, you know, one of them was on the spelling uh, that I chose of the word Plymouth, uh, which the spelling I chose was P L I M O T H, which was the spelling that was chosen or, uh, originally by William Bradford, um, who was uh, the leader of the Plymouth colony, um, and there's a reason why they did that. Uh, you know, the colonists back at that time they wanted to name their new plantation in honor of their departure point in Plymouth, England, which is spelled P-L-Y-M-O-U-T-H, so the, the Plymouth we, uh, spelling we all are familiar with now. Uh, but back at that time period, they wanted to differentiate it, make sure people didn't get confused between the two. Um, so they chose an alternate spelling. And in the 17th century, the English language, there's no dictionaries, there's no standardization. And so even if you read something like the US Constitution, you're going to find in the 1700s still a lot of things spelled completely differently at that time period than we spell them nowadays under a standardized uh, English format. And so I chose that spelling on purpose um, to, you know, for, for English readers to understand uh, that their language 
evolves is and is dynamic um and you know at one time uh was definitely not standardized and there is uh, definitely no one correct spelling to a colonial name of a native place patuxet uh you know and so that's one of the reasons why i chose it was to you know engage that conversation with people and it's pretty interesting how some folks will just simply you know write it off by looking at the title how could they publish a book and not even spell Plymouth right, you know, and it's like if you open the book and read it, you would find an explanation and understanding. And so there's a whole lot of first and third graders that are going to be teaching their parents um, about why they're reading this misspelled book. <laughs> <laughs> Literally judging a book by its cover, right? <laughs> yes. You are listening to Dawnland Signals on WERU FM. I am your co-host Esther Ann, along with co-host Maria Gerard. Dawnland Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. And today in our, our Thanksgiving show special, we're talking with Chris Newell about his new book, if you live during the Plymouth Thanksgiving. So Chris, are you, um, you, you talked about where people could find the book. Um, are you doing any book signings? I am uh, definitely doing some book events, many of them virtual right now, of course, with, with the pandemic. Um, you know, so uh, book signings are, are, are a little, um, uh, kind of uh, just starting to develop as as the book is, uh, you know, getting getting more traction, um, you know, but uh, definitely a lot of interest. Um, you know, I, I've heard from uh, several people, actually, I've, I've gotten Facebook messages where uh, the, the, the retailer they chose uh, is showing the book out of stock. And uh, they're asking me when that uh, when that will be fixed. I can't, you know, I unfortunately, I can't answer that question for them because I'm not the retailer. I don't know if that's because the book is just selling well, or it could be because of the pandemic and the supply, um, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the distribution is just difficult right now for, for some places. Um, you know, one way or the other, but um, yeah, I, you know, it's 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 um, uh, definitely catching fire, though, which is uh, very interesting, especially this time of year, as as people are gearing up towards, uh, especially teachers teaching about the Thanksgiving holiday, and once again, they start teaching the first Thanksgiving narrative. I actually wrote it. Um, you know, it's aimed with language at, at uh, you know, uh, first to third and then fourth graders, but uh, I wrote it really with teachers as an audience as well, um, because, you know, the way the first Thanksgiving narrative has been taught and continues to be taught has been taught this way since the 19th century. So these teachers grew up with this narrative uh, and their parents did too. And doing things like putting, uh, you know, making the paper headdresses and, the, uh, you know, the, the grocery bag uh, vests uh, with the fringe and stuff like that, 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 you know, that, you know, we as native parents cringe if we have our kids in a non-native school when they come home with those things on, uh, still gets done to this day. So my hope is that the teachers would be able to, do, you know, pull a lot of the historical information from this and find a better way to teach about the holiday. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of the content of the book is not just on the Mayflower landing, but is actually on the development of the first Thanksgiving narrative in the 19th century and how it became so pervasive as, uh, uh, as the truthful you know, uh, tale uh, of this particular history, um, why it happened, um, you know, and uh, um, 
uh, and what we can do to kind of counteract it. I, it, it might surprise people, um, you know, that the first Thanksgiving narrative was was popularized not in the 17th century, but until the later 19th century, um, and it, actually it didn't become uh, part of uh, parlance in, in uh, the school system until the post Civil War period. Uh, interestingly enough. Uh, you know, there's, uh, well, I explained very, very well, um, you know, the difference between an English day of Thanksgiving in the 17th century, which was actually a day of prayer and fasting, and they would declare them for victories in war or whatever they wanted to. The church did in England, and they, they started to, uh, in the Americas, the, the, the English colonies did as well. Um, interestingly enough, English days of Thanksgiving, those days of prayer, were actually declared pre-1621, pre the Plymouth colony even being established in the Virginia colony. Um, but because the time of the creation of the first Thanksgiving holiday proclamation by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, the North was winning and the foundational myth that was being created um, had to happen in the North. Uh, it could not happen in the South as a result of the political climate of the time. So it, it might surprise people that there's actually a level of propaganda, uh, you know, that was created by the government and pushed by uh, the commercial media at the time. Uh, a woman named Sarah Josepha Hill mainly is, is one of the persons, you know, responsible for it, uh, that actually, you know, created this myth that became truth to the American public for well over a hundred years. Wow. You know, when whenever I do like any kind of public panels, I think did one with Don, um, Adam and Gizitano a couple weeks ago with Donlin, and people will ask, so so what what can I do? What can I do? And sometimes I'll say, well, Thanksgiving's coming up. You know, you can have a different conversation with your family. And I wonder if this book would be a good resource, even for adults. Um, because all of the stuff you're telling me, I didn't know all these nuances about how it got politicized and all of these things. Yeah, I, I mean, that's, you know, that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help people get, you know, from a, a better uh, point A to a, uh, from a point A to a better point B, right, you know, because they've gotten to one certain point B and everybody's been satisfied with that, because it, it, it made people feel good about colonization but to native people we've never felt good about it you know uh and it's important uh you know uh, the, the way non-native writers have approached it is to try to be objective uh you know but in their try to be objective they oftentimes leave out that there's devastation you know happening to native peoples during this period and if we don't bring that into the tale not all of it is on purpose right you know um the the epidemics like the great dying you know we don't know how exactly that started we don't even necessarily know the disease that, that it was um and it, would, it was highly likely not a purposeful event but it did happen it did have an effect right and that that did lead to the decimation of populations which did lead to the oversettling of the english and now with that extra power force that erupts in the violence, you know, and that's what this period has a whole lot of when it comes to Native people is dispossession of land and, you know, the, the justification and rationalization that is going on there. And so, um, you know, the, there's this tale, there's this one tale of an alliance that happens between Usamaquin uh, and Bradford's people, but there's a reason why it happened. And actually Usamaquin, as you know, and 
people know him as Massasoit. Uh, that's one of the things that I also get at um, is uh, a, a Massasoit is uh, a title. Uh, Massa meaning the greatest, you know, like Massachusetts, the place of the great hills. Uh, you know, so in their language, you know, a Massasoit is the grand sachem or the sachem of the sachem. So Usamaquin was considered a sachem that was the leader of other sachems for the other villages and came from the village of Poconoket, which is typically where the Wampanoags chose, um, you know, the Massasoit. Um, and, uh, you know, so I use his name constantly, uh, you know, Osamaquin, and I don't call him Massasoit, but I do explain where that term came from so that people understand, because uh, his son, Pometacom, that followed him was a Massasoit as well, you know, so have, having a better understanding of those terms, uh, you know, and really updating, uh, you know, uh, the way the anglicized versions of these have, you know, kind of like just missed the meaning altogether and bringing these people's names back into the story so that we're speaking their names uh, rather than talking about, uh, you know, um, somebody's uh, interpretation of what they were. That's, uh, that's so very important. And I, I can't help but think back to, um, I think it was in 2005 here in Maine when the um, Maine Indian history and culture law was being moved through the legislature. Uh, it became known as LD 291 and, and became passed into law. And um, I was involved at Penobscot Nation in helping to develop some educational resources at that time. And, you know, we kept saying that, that it was so critical to be able to provide um, accurate and, and culturally sensitive materials for teachers because for so long teachers were only doing the best they can based on what they knew. And, you know, they were being uh, taught this, um, you know, this myth of Thanksgiving. So um, I'm really excited about that. And I, I have found that through the years um, that teachers want to do the right thing when it comes to teaching history. They just need to have something to put their hands on, you know. So you had uh, mentioned earlier that um, you had done work also in the past around demystifying Thanksgiving. And, um, you know, I was curious about your educational initiative. You're, you're um, a co-founder and director of education for, uh, is it Egomont? Egomont? Yeah, Egomont. Yeah. Educational initiative. Did you want to speak a little bit about what that is and what you sure. do? Yeah, I, I mean, so much of that goes into really, you know, the, the whole, you know, crux of, of what we're after here. And, and it was based off of my experiences with uh, co-workers uh, in my time at the Pequot Museum. Uh, so the Pequot Museum is located in Southeast Connecticut. Uh, it's the world's largest tribally owned museum. The building is 305,000 square feet and the exhibit space itself is 85,000 square feet. And it tells a, a 20,000 year history of the, the area that uh, of what we now call Connecticut, uh, you know, which is actually the river, not the state, you know, and so it, it, it redirects that understanding and it tells the, that history unapologetically from a Pequot perspective, which is so needed because Connecticut loves its colonial history and has erased native people uh, to an extreme point. That was one of the things that shocked me, I think the most when I moved from Maine down to Connecticut is just the level of erasure um, of native peoples that exists. And so we would have experiences, you know, I, I was the education supervisor, but I was very, you know, I was an active supervisor in that I gave tours myself along with my uh, educators. 
uh, it was not uncommon for students and their parents to ask in a tour with a Pequot educator leading their tour if the Pequots were alive. Now, this is what the, the level of public education has done with this with this erasure. And um, so we, we saw the need, you know, me and my cohorts, uh, you know, my, my business partners and Donna Spears and Dr. Jason Mancini is the former director of, of the museum. Uh, we saw the need to unsilo what was being taught in the Pequot Museum out in the Connecticut to be just taught as history. Not, not, not a different history, you know, and because the only time these kids were, were experiencing this um, was when they would come into the building and that we wanted to unsilo that. And so we began to make partnerships with places like UConn and Connecticut College and really started to work with them on how, how they can teach these histories confidently. Um, and over time we moved on, you know, the, the three of us did move on from the Pequot Museum, but we did not want to let this work go, you know, uh, you know, aside because we kind of built a lot of momentum. And to your point, Maria, what we discovered, uh, and, and this was something I discovered definitely back in my, uh, in, from day one at the Pequot Museum, is that the teachers want to do better. They do. But there's literally in Connecticut, there was nothing for them to go to, except for the Pequot Museum, um, you know, to counteract the, the 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 lack of or you know the the tremendously bad materials that they had to work with, um, you know. So Agamal Educational Initiative is is working to address that in all areas of education. Agamal is Passamaquoddy for the snowshoe path. That's the the symbol that drives our mission. Um, the snowshoe paths, you know, uh, in, in our villages were the the path out to where you went to gather wood, hunt, gather, you know, whatever you needed for your supplies, you spread yourselves out in the wood, but to find your way home, you found your way back to Agamount, the snowshoe path. And then uh, that path disappears with the seasons and then reemerges by, you know, by the use of people again. It might change a little bit in that next season as an adjustment to how, you know, the world has changed. And so that, that dynamic nature of what we do um, is built into that symbol. Um, and so that's, that's really what we're all about is creating new learning paths for educators, especially not just native educators, but non-native educators who want to do better, which there's so many of them out there to find and bridge those gaps. We don't want to want them to become dependent on Agamount to do this work for them. What we do is we try to bridge the gap. How do you find good resources? How do you use English language terminology to talk about native peoples? You know, because just things like generalized terms like Indian, American Indian native, which are all wrong, um, the first question I get from them is which one is the right one, you know, and that's where more people are stuck. And that's one of the one of the reasons why I go after the English language and its shortcomings when we try to talk about Native people so that we can understand them better uh, and then uh, try to get folks to narrow down to when you're going to talk about a tribe use their name you know so with the main department of education I, I had a little tussle with them over one of their moose modules which they called Maine's Indians um, you know uh, Wabanaki people do not belong to the state of Maine uh, you know and so that was one thing that I went after them right away is you know we are not Indian you know we are Wabanaki use the word you know and, uh, and so those are the types of things that I, I look to do and, and, and uh, to the DOE's credit they listened uh, 
you know, so, you know, there's definitely uh, that, that uh, uh, as you said, that inspiration amongst teachers to do better. It's a matter of us as Native peoples helping the system, you know, uh, find a way to do better uh, for itself. Great. I love the um, explanation of the name, uh, those snowshoe paths. That's wonderful. Um, so where can people put their hands on these sorts of resources that exist? I know you're, you're talking about, um, you know, hoping that people get to a point where they're doing their own work, but in the meantime, uh, you, and especially around Thanksgiving, uh, I know uh, Wabanaki Reach has requests from people about uh, resources and information about uh, demystifying Thanksgiving and all that, and we do um, generally, we, we will put something up on social media or on our blog or things like that, but do you have any suggestions for where people can find some good resources? Um, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, you can go to the agamount.org uh, uh, webpage and, uh, you know, you'll find that we, we do produce resources, things on, you know, how to, how to have conversations about native mascots. You know, that's a big uh, topic, especially after the George Floyd murders. A lot of schools really, the momentum really took off uh, on those conversations. And what we were ended up seeing was a lot of people just not having intelligent conversations and really not getting to the point of, of what it was about. And so we created a native mascot resource page on on our uh, Agamount website. So there's things like that that we, we create. And the work that Agamount does, uh, we try to create these resources for free. Um, so we've published uh, you know, a, a set of uh, best uh, practices for teaching about Native peoples for uh, museum educators, which you can find in uh, the uh, New England Museum Association publication from uh, last fall, um, as well as with the Norman B. Leventhal Map Center, we published a, a set of slides. Um, so it goes into that English language terminology, it goes into, uh, you know, uh, uh, issues of, um, you know, just uh, how to talk about Native peoples using uh, proper tense, uh, you know, uh, including present tense, you know, things like that and you know so you're not playing feeding implicit biases things like that uh so even though it, some of that is is aimed at museum education any educator you know that that educates um can pull from from those and those are freely made freely available resources that we put out there also we, we do a lot of work with organizations uh so museum archipelago has a couple of uh, uh interviews from me and my partner and donis uh two kind of offsetting interviews about the the work that agamont does with museums. Uh, and we also did a presentation in 2019 with a closing presentation for uh, the American Institute for Conservation uh, uh, annual meeting. The American Institute for Conservation is the largest gathering of conservators, museum conservators in the nation. Uh, they held their, their meeting at Mohegan Sun. We were invited with uh, Untold Stories and we partnered on the closing session, uh, which is a little over uh, an hour and a half, uh, around two hours. Uh, but very, very detailed on how museums and in their collections and education can work to do this work of, you know, uh, decolonization, re-indigenization re of, uh, you know, the information and knowledge uh, that their uh, their institutions are, are giving out. So uh, yeah, there's really something, if you work in education in some way, shape, or form, there's something for everybody in, in a, little, a little bit in what we do. Um, and then 
uh, you know, one of the most popular things we also get asked about is land acknowledgements. Um, and uh, our answer to that um, is we do not write land acknowledgements for other people because what we do is we teach the process. Uh, if a group comes to us, what we do typically do is send them a lot of resources on how they can do it for themselves because uh, my answer to that and in, in, in any organization that is looking to create a land acknowledgement um, is that uh, if you're going to do it, what is what are the steps beyond before you even start it you need to ask yourself that question what are the steps beyond the land acknowledgement because if you're just creating words to recite that is just checking a box you are not doing enough uh, also the process of you yourself as an organization doing the research and writing these words that you acknowledge these you know actual histories and paths um, has an effect on your organization and if you were to outsource that to somebody else to do it for you that's not your voice and your organization did not go through that learning process in writing those words and so uh, what i would suggest uh just outwardly you know when it comes to that type of thing which is such a popular question these days and i'm sure reach you guys probably get tons of request for uh, land land acknowledgements. Uh, I would I just, you know, uh, yeah, I would put that advertisement out there that, uh, you know, do the research. And uh, uh, if you do come to Agamal, what we will do is we'll help you guide your finished product to make sure it's culturally competent. We'll, we'll, we'll do, a, you know, a little bit of that for you. But it's going to start with you doing the work. And the first question we're going to ask is before we even decide to help you in that, that little bit at the end, what are the steps beyond? What are you going to do beyond saying the words? It's it's so nice that we're on the same page that way because um, that's what we say as well. You got to do the work to to make it meaningful. You are listening to Dawnland Signals on WERU FM. I am your co-host Maria Gerard, along with co-host Esther Ann. Dawnland Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. And today we are talking about a fabulous new publication written by Pasmaquati, Chris Newell. And it's part of the Scholastic series, What If You Lived um, series. And the book is called, What If You Lived During the Plymouth Thanksgiving. And um, so we're having a great conversation about uh, educational resources and about the background to this uh, fabulous new book. Um, and Esther, I think you had a question. Yeah, I first wanted to um, let folks know that the website that Chris um, directed us to is akomawt.org. Just because, just in case people had uh, questions. And we'll, usually when we do a Donland Signal show, um, we'll try to do a little resource page to go along with the show and we can list some of these resources there too for people to find. So Chris, I'm, I'm hoping that you'll be able to, or you'll want to share. You said the book was 96 pages. Maybe you'll want to <laughs> read a little bit of it with us without giving out too much. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Um, so this is the book. It, it comes in hardcover as well as paperback. Um, and uh, so this is the hardcover version I have here. And as I mentioned, uh, the table of contents, 
uh, really comes out as, as a set of questions. And so I got to frame the, the way the questions were asked. Um, and so once again, the perspective as a native writer comes through a little bit differently, you know, and just in, in the, uh, the way the, the, you know, compared to the previous book and how those questions were constructed versus how I constructed the questions. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm answering things like what is a colony and who is a colonist? Right, so that we can have a real good, you know, baseline understanding for students of what actually colonization was about. You know that these were people coming to, you know, fortune seek, to, you know, to use the resources here uh, to make a living for themselves and get land and things of that sort. Um, and and um, you know, some of the questions are, are things like. Um, not just a, about the English colonists, which is so much of the, the focus of previous books, um, but a lot of how, you know, the Wampanoag perspective, how they received, uh, you know, the English colonists. Um, you know, so one of the questions that we see in there is uh, how did life change for the English colonists in Plymouth? after they established contact with the Wampanoags. That's a very, very seminal moment because you got to remember that half of the English colonists perished in the first year without the help of, uh, you know, the, the Wampanoags, uh, you know, so there's a very real story to how the Wampanoags contributed to the benefit of life and, and survival for the colonists after that, um, you know, and, and but uh, there's also explanations of the reasons why, uh, you know, and so there's uh, pieces of histories in there. Like I said, the great dying had wiped out the village of Patuxet, uh, you know, Osamaquin's people were under pressure to pay tribute from the Narragansett people who had not been affected by the great dying and therefore saw the English and their guns as kind of one of the ways uh, to, you know, forestall that, uh, uh, that pressure that that, that uh, his people were under. But Usamaquin took a lot of heat uh, for, for allying with the English. Not all Wampanoag leaders agreed with him, but throughout his lifetime, he did, uh, uh, you know, uh, go with the alliance. So I do, I will read a portion of it for you. Uh, the question uh, I'll, I'll get to is the one, uh, which is, uh, you know, who were the pilgrims? Uh, because I love uh, this question, because when we say that word right now, we think of all the people on the Mayflower, that they were all pilgrims and that they were all here coming to America to find a place to establish religious freedom. And that's the uh, the narrative, right, of, of uh, the first Thanksgiving narrative that, that's, that's often pervasive. Uh, but there's actually more to the story. Um, let me get to the right page here. So, who were the pilgrims? A pilgrim is a person who makes a long journey to a foreign land. So that's a simple definition, right? Is this somebody, you know, so people make pilgrimages uh, for religious regions uh, that are Muslim, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of uh, different, uh, and, and native peoples did as well, you know, what we could call in the English language, a spiritual journey. Uh, you know, native people could, uh, you could apply that term pilgrimage to some of uh, the religious ways of some native peoples even. So, you know, I give it a general definition. A pilgrim is a person who makes a long journey to a foreign land, often for religious purposes. In 1608, a group of English citizens unhappy with the Church of England 
protested by leaving for Holland, present-day Netherlands, to practice Christianity freely as they chose. These people were known as religious separatists. And so this is where I kind of get into it, because the word uh, applying pilgrim to all of them doesn't begin until the 19th century. So they were known as religious separatists because of their wish to separate, separate themselves from the large, established, organized churches of the time. However, life for the separatists was difficult in Holland. Many of the separatists also disagreed on how their religion should be practiced. As a result, a group of like-minded separatists, you notice how I keep saying separatists, 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 right? And they're not pilgrim, pilgrim, pilgrim. That's, that's one of the things that, that's in there. Uh, made plans to leave Holland for the American continent. In 1620, 41 members of this group returned to England on a ship called the Speedwell. Uh, and what, so if anybody's never heard of the Speedwell, the Speedwell is actually the partnership with the Mayflower that they all left together, but the Speedwell sprung a leak uh, and was sent back. And uh, because that's why they were late. That's why they arrived to the territory late. Uh, it's because they were down to one ship. Um, so they had dreams of going to America. The separatists referred to themselves as saints. William Bradford, the future leader of their new settlement at Plymouth Plantation, was one of the saints. In his journal, which was later published in a two-part book called Of Plymouth Plantation, he called their journey a pilgrimage. When describing England, he wrote, quote, they knew they were pilgrims and looked not much on those things, but lifted up their eyes to the heavens, their dearest country, and quieted their spirits. The term pilgrim referred to the 41 self-named saints until the 1800s, the 19th century, when it became the common uh, 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 term in America to refer to all passengers on Captain Jones Mayflower as pilgrims, whether they were saints or not. And less than half the passengers were saints. Most of them were crew or were fortune seekers that were coming here, uh, you know, to, to uh, create a fortune for themselves. Fascinating. Thank you. I call myself a historian and I, I realized by talking with you that I have so much more yet to, to learn. <laughs> um, let's see, what haven't we talked about so far? Uh, before we began recording, Chris, you were talking about actually being in in your place when you were in Eastport and writing this. Describe that a little bit, because I was envisioning that, you know, as you know, such a um, you know, a, a, I've been on in Eastport before, and especially over winter, and so I know that it's a place where you can really just hunker down and, and get some good work done. So describe. Um, the writing process for us. Yeah, uh, it wasn't Eastport, it was Ellsworth. So, uh, oh, shoot, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I screwed that up. I messed that up for you because uh, just for, for the folks that uh, don't know, in the pre, I said Eastport and I meant Ellsworth. So, uh, okay. it's yeah, not Maria's right. fault that that happened. <laughs> So yes, it was Ellsworth. Um, and of course, this is my time uh, at the Abbey Museum, uh, you know, and this, uh, I arrived at the Abbey on March 3rd of, of 2020, um, you know, found a small Airbnb and then eventually found a rental house. 
um, you know, but not big enough for my entire family uh, to come up with me. So I was, you know, during that time, uh, you know, we closed the museum as a result of the pandemic on week two of my arrival at the Abbey. Um, and so uh, from that time on, I, I spent that, you know, from uh, middle of March, you know, through basically through the, to the next year, uh, working remotely from, uh, you know, my rental house uh, in Ellsworth. And so I was there by myself uh, in isolation doing work remotely and also, you know, in isolation because of the pandemic, you know, and not going out a lot, uh, you know, so uh, it maybe was serendipitous that I had this project kind of fall into my lap, um, that I had something to do uh, to keep me occupied. But uh, because it was a, a rental, I, I did not furnish it. Uh, it was a very much a bachelor pad place. Uh, in fact, I didn't even move into the bedrooms. I, I, I bought a, a, a simple twin bed from Lowe's uh, and put it in the living room next to a, a, a little love seat. Uh, I, I purchased the TV, so at least I would have television, made sure I had uh, Wi-Fi for, you know, the remote uh, part of work, um, you know, but that was my existence was, you know, loneliness uh, and sitting there. And my furniture was, uh, you know, for, for uh, doing my remote work was a dinner tray that I bought at Walmart. That was the, the cheapest thing that I could find uh, and the, uh, the least construction, you know, because you tools to build all the Walmart furniture, you know, so, um, you know, a dinner tray seemed to make sense. So it was an extra large dinner tray so it, it fit everything I needed so I, I squeezed everything on there and I sat hunched over um, you know that dinner tray in uh, my nights after work uh, you know working doing the research uh, you know putting together the draft uh, and this was my first book project I never written a book before uh, it took me way longer than uh, you know the uh, initially the, the editor expected but uh, what I found was uh, you know for me in writing a book it was uh, almost almost like letting a you know like opening a vein it, it's like a Part of your, your heart and soul is being being put on paper and then other people are going to read it and uh that's a, a you know for the when you do that the first time um it's it's a, a, a bit of a struggle at times to push through right what you know those things that block you and uh i didn't have anybody to, to guide me i mean we did this uh without even a zoom meeting you know me and my editor katie height uh you know or did this all through email uh you know so i eventually did get uh you know i was uh, contracted for an 8500 word manuscript manuscript uh, i was so into the topic that my first draft was about 15000 words so i overdid it a little bit <laughs> <laughs> um, and we ended up having to cut out, you know, about 3,500 words from it to get it down to something manageable, which is why it's so, you know, 96 pages and why it's so uh, detailed packed. Um, you know, I, I, I just, uh, I, I tend to have a standard for, for what I do, um, you know, and being my first work uh, i didn't want to disappoint people i guess uh so before i actually showed I, I ended up like you know really uh you know um putting up tons of tons and time uh into that first draft but eventually we did whittle it down we got it you know to age appropriate uh language uh you know and sentence structure and, and things of that sort um you know and uh uh, to our surprise, um, when it went to 
through the review process, the school library journal gave it a starred review, which you read some, Esther uh, read some of at the beginning. And then we also got a second starred review from Kirkus Reviews, which is, a, you know, school library journal is the largest reviewer of children's books. Kirkus Review is, you know, the oldest reviewer of books. And to get a starred review from Kirkus Reviews is actually kind of like gold for, for writers. And, and so to be a first time writer, to get two starred reviews and one of them to be a Kirkus star, which just blew my mind uh, at the reception. But looking at the reviews, it was obvious that the writers were getting what I was trying to get across. Uh, you know, the, the native perspective, uh, you know, of uh, how uh, Wampanoag peoples received the English rather than the other way around. And both reviews use the word essential uh, uh, um, in describing, uh, you know, uh, the book itself, um, you know. So uh, I, I really appreciated uh, that endorsement from them. And uh, my hope is, um, you know, that, uh, you know, not just the children that read it, but the teachers will also be enriched, uh, you know, by, uh, and, and also everyone they share it with, maybe their parents and grandparents, you know, who, who would probably benefit from uh, uh, learning some of the, the little nuggets that are in this history. And one of the things I also did was, uh, you know, like I said, I tried to really center Wampanoag voices. Back in 1971, Frank James, uh, a Wampanoag uh, scholar, uh, Wamsutta, um, was invited uh, to the Plymouth um, 350th uh, anniversary, uh, you know, and uh, he was invited as a Wampanoag to give a speech, um, you know, and the, the organizers at the time thought he would give this, you know, glorified speech about, you know, the greatness of, of the first Thanksgiving narrative event, which they had all, you know, that, that was the, the, the thinking of the time is that everybody thought this was great. Frank James wrote a speech which was very, very real uh, uh, from the Wampanoag perspective about the effects of colonization and what happened and, and the slavery and, and other things. And I actually sourced material from his suppressed speech. Um, you know, so there's little nuggets in there that I hope uh, Wampanoag people can feel proud about, um, you know, because he was not allowed to give that speech. You know, that speech was eventually published and is now part of the Smithsonian's collection, um, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that people like Frank James who and, and others, uh, Tall Oak and, uh, you know, other uh, people working in this region at the time that began the National Day of Mourning, because that's mentioned in there as well, you know, that Wampanoag people see this history very differently and, and celebrate uh, not a, a day of Thanksgiving, but a day of mourning, uh, you know, so Native peoples look at this holiday very, very differently. Um, so those little nuggets are in there. There that I hope, uh, that's my biggest hope, is that Wampanoag people can look at this uh, book and, and feel uh, proud about the way, um, you know, their histories are being represented and centered, and that things that were suppressed actively by, by uh, you know, the colonial world are actually being given a voice uh, in this work. I'm always uh, so appreciative um, when people bring opportunities to bring forth ancestors' voices into um, current materials. I, I love that that's included in there. We only have about uh, two minutes left together. Um, and I, I just wanted to, I was wondering if there was any sort of announcements or anything like that that we might have. I know that I wanted to say that um, the Basket Makers Holiday Market is happening this year on December 11th at the University of Maine Collins Center for the Arts. Uh, so that's the Basket Makers uh, Holiday Market, December 11th, from 9 o'clock to 3 o'clock p.m. Um, does anyone else have any uh, announcements that we want to throw out? 
I just want to reiterate where folks can can purchase um, Chris's book and at major retailers online, right? And you also said local bookstores. Do you know of any? I know you're not out here in Maine anymore. I you're down in Connecticut. Do you know of any in the area here in Maine that would be selling them? I'm trying to think of local bookstores. I know tons of local bookstores did end up ordering it. So if you there's a website called Indie Books, I-N-D-I-E. Um, okay. And if you look on, on their website, they will point you to local bookstores that have it in stock. So not all of these local bookstores sell online, so you might have to drive there. But if okay. you want to support your local bookstore, you can. And that's what I, I, I tend to encourage people to, to go there um, to see if they can find it uh, locally. Perfect. Perfect. Well, um, thank you so much, Chris Newell, for joining us, uh, author of the new publication, What If You Lived During the Plymouth Thanksgiving. Uh, thank you to WERU-FM for creating space for this special Thanksgiving Day program. Uh, thank you to the listeners for joining us on Donland Signals. As always, thank you to our volunteer technician, Jeffrey Hodgkiss, for his continued assistance and support. And be sure to join us for our regular Dawnland Signals programs every third Thursday of the month and for more conversations of truth, healing, and change. Stay tuned for more great programming here on WERU-FM. Minach Kanemio. Perfect.